Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Let's go. So back in Kirtland, things are a hot mess, right? The, the Kirtland Safety Society fails. People, including apostles, turn against Joseph Smith. At one point, like an apostle pulling a sword on another apostle in there. It is crazy. Brigham has to flee Kirtland because he defends Joseph Smith. And finally, on January 12th, 1838, God says to Joseph, let the presidency of my church take their families and move on to the West as fast as the way is made plain. So Joseph and Sidney get on their horses at 10 o'clock at night. That's how crazy things are. Drive 60 miles as fast as they can and then wait for their families to catch up. And they go on to far West. Now, Joseph is going to arrive in far west Missouri on March 14th. So it's going to take him several months to get there. And so far west is going to become the the church headquarters for the next 11 months till about February 14th, not quite a year. And honestly, the next year is a mess. Let me tell you a little bit about it, why it is so difficult. First of all, why far west? Well, when the saints are driven from Jackson County, most of them go directly north to Clay County, where they stay uneventfully for another couple of years. But things are getting crowded and tight. And so uh, a friend of the church, Alexander Donovan, he proposes to the state legislature that they create two small counties um, directly north of Ray County, Caldwell and Davies County, that would kind of serve as a Latter-day Saint preserve, right? Like a way to segregate these terrible Latter-day Saints away from the good citizens of Missouri so that they're no longer troubled by them. And so the two counties are are created and the Latter-day Saints move into the largest settlement in Caldwell County, which was meant to be almost exclusively for members of the church. And the, the biggest city there, like we said, is far west. So Joseph arrives in far west. Saints have been there for a while. But when he arrives, things aren't going great in Missouri. Assistant church president Oliver Cowdery is unhappy. Like Joseph has begun to practice plural marriage. And trust me, we will go in depth in plural marriage in the future. I'll talk about it a lot. But for now, just know that Oliver and Joseph have had a a disagreement over plural marriage. Add to that the fact that, that Oliver started in leadership of the church basically when he was in his early 20s, now he's basically 30. His whole 20s are, have been dedicated to building the church. And it kind of just, he's kind of sick of just being told what to do all the time. He, he wants to practice law. He wants to make some money. He wants to raise his family and not have every living minute of his life dedicated to the church. So people moving in from Ohio hear his attitude and feel like he's in rebellion. Now, he's not happy with things, but rebellion might be a little strong. But you got these people coming from um, Ohio where you got people pulling knives, bowie knives and guns in the temple. And so this sort of attitude of rebellion, there is an overreaction to it. Um, And so they decide to excommunicate um, Oliver Cowdery. Well, Oliver, as assistant president of the church, is like, you know what you can do with your excommunication hearing? Yeah, he doesn't even show up, so he is excommunicated. And he's going to basically spend a decade outside of the church. But in 1848, in October, he's like, 
I need the church again. He tries the reorganized church, but he's like, you don't have the priesthood. I was there when the priesthood was restored. And so on October 1848 in Canesville, Iowa, he comes back and is rebaptized into the church. Then you got the stake president in Missouri. Now, stake president is not like your stake president. This is the de facto leader of the church in Missouri. Joseph's in Ohio. He leads the church in Ohio. And David Whitmer, like one of the original three witnesses of the gold plates, is the leader of the church in Missouri. But he is also excommunicated shortly after Joseph's arrival for three things. One, usurping too much authority. Two, writing letters of dissension. And three, breaking the word of wisdom. Now, David's never going to come back to the church, but to the day he dies, he is going to maintain that he saw an angel and he saw the gold plates, and they're absolutely factually real, 100%. David's two counselors in the stake presidency, his brother John Whitmer and W.W. Phelps, are also going to be excommunicated on February 10th, 1838. Basically, their problem is a little bit different. They have collected funds from missionaries in order to buy land in Zion, to buy land in Missouri, and they did just that. But they bought the land in their own name and then sold it for a profit. And as they say at the basketball games, you can't do that. Anyways, finally, you got Apostle Lyman Johnson, who is also excommunicated around the same time for apostasy. So you have tons of leaders of the church um, excommunicated in Ohio. And then you got these five significant leaders excommunicated in Missouri. Well, when Sidney sees all this, he's fired up with all this apostasy. He's just like, what the heck is your problem? So on Sunday, June 17th, Sidney preaches a sermon based on the, the Sermon on the Mount. It comes from the scripture in Matthew 5.13 that says, "Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of man. The implication is very obvious to everybody listening. It is so clear that the excommunicated apostates were good for nothing and should be cast out. And so some people pick up what Sidney's putting down and they pass around an unauthorized document signed by 84 members of the church that pointedly ordered these five apostates to leave the county or face serious consequences. So the dissenters leave. They feel like the, these guys are serious and this is a tense time. Also around this time, contributing to the conflict with the Missourians is a bunch of Latter-day Saints who have just had enough. They're sick of getting pushed around. One of the leaders of this group is a guy named Samson Avard, and they form an underground society called the Danites. And basically, like, this is, well, it's an oath-bound group with secret identification and warning signs. Does that sound gadiant and robber enough for you? Avard convinces his followers that they operate with the approval of the presidency of the church and they're authorized to avenge themselves against church enemies by robbery, lying, and murder if necessary. Yeah, that sounds super Christian, right? So the Danite actions, both real and imagined, are going to intensify the hostilities and give uh, Missouri officials reason to indict Joseph and other leaders for crimes against the state later on. And then you still got Sidney just poking the bear, stoking the flames right here. On July 4th, 1838, he gives an Independence Day talk. 
And on Independence Day, he thunders out his own declaration of independence. His declaration of independence from any further mob violence or activity. He warns potential mobs in Missouri that the church is no longer going to meekly bear persecution, but we are going to defend ourselves. In fact, he says, quote, It shall be between us and them a war of extermination. Oh, pay attention to that phrase. That's going to come back. This is Sydney's own words. For we will follow them till the last drop of their blood is spilled or else they will have to exterminate us, end quote. So this, uh, <laughs> this speech, like people write it down, make copies, publish it, and uh, sure enough, it doesn't lead to Latter-day Saints gaining many friends there in Missouri. So all of this tension between Latter-day Saints and Missourians come to a, a head on Election Day, which is held August 6th, 1838. Election Day uh, happens in Gallatin, up there in the, the northern county, right? And, and there are two people, main, main people running. There's two main parties, the Whig Party and the Democrats. The Republican Party doesn't exist. The Republican Party is created to combat the two perceived ills in America of slavery and polygamy. Looking at you, Latter-day Saints out there. So there is no Republican Party right now, but for all intents and purposes, there's Whigs and there's Democrats. And there's a guy named William Penniston. He's running for the Whig Party. And most Latter-day Saints at the time are um, Democrats. So he doesn't want the, the Latter-day Saints to vote because he feels like they'll vote against him. So it's early in the morning. It's 11 o'clock um, in the morning, 11 a.m. I guess that's not early. That's basically afternoon. But people are already just well into their alcohol. It's a free day from work and they're getting sauced. And William just shouts out in his speech that morning. He says, the Mormon leaders are a set of horse thieves, liars, and counterfeiters. That counterfeiter charge is going to come up over and over because of the creation of the Kirtland Safety Society and the fact that other banks wouldn't accept their banknotes. And you know they profess to heal the sick and cast out devils, and you know that's all a lie, end quote. Well, based on his inflammatory speech, the, the whiskey filling the crowd, conflict is inevitable. So when church members arrive to vote, they line up in front of basically this log cabin where they're going to vote and waiting their turn. While they're waiting, a dude named Dick Welding just walks up to a, a member of the church and just sucker punches him in the face. No warning, just crack. Well, this guy's friend, John L. Butler, not this guy, not Dick Welding's friend, but the guy who gets punched friend, his name's John L. Butler. He's a member of the church and he's like, nope, not happening. So he grabs a piece of wood from a nearby wood pile and he starts cracking the attackers, Dick Welding and others. And then it's just on. Missourians run over to houses and start tearing the clapboard or the, the siding off and start hitting Latter-day Saints. One church member has a burlap sack full of dishes and he starts bashing skulls this is not like you're pushing fight in junior high like this is full-on grown men beating each other with two by fours and sacks full of dishes needless to say several people on both sides are seriously hurt and p.s even though the saints didn't vote peniston still lost the election punk anyways People are seriously hurt, but this is a time where there, there's kind of, you've played the game telephone where you whisper a message ear to ear. Well, that's how it goes almost every time during this conflict. 
People on the Missourian side hear that the, the Latter-day Saints attacked the Missourians unprovoked. Joseph hears the next morning that two or three Latter-day Saints had been killed in the fight. So he gets a bunch of guys and they go north to the, the Latter-day Saint settlement of Adamon Diamond. When he arrives, he's relieved to hear that none of the Latter-day Saints have actually been killed. But he's like, what the heck? Where were the cops on this? So he goes directly to Adam Black, who is the justice of the peace, and asks him to sign a paper stating that he will keep the peace fairly between the Latter-day Saints and the, the Missourians. And Adam Black straight up refuses. After Joseph and his friends leave Adam Black's house, Adam Black goes to the authority and demands that Joseph be arrested for intimidating him. Now, months later, this charge is actually going to go to hearing, and Adam Black is going to admit that Joseph didn't actually ever threaten him, and so it's going to be dismissed. But this, this moment starts the, just a lot of hostilities the rest of August and September. Missourians start harassing church members, burning their hay, shooting their cattle. Some uh, church members fight back. There's a, a smaller group of Latter-day Saints that live in a different um, county in Missouri, still adjacent. It's called Carroll County. And most of the Latter-day Saints live in a little t uh, city in Carroll County called DeWitt. And so the, the people of Carroll County are like, why are we putting up with these Latter-day Saints? Let's just get rid of them like they got rid of them um, in, in, in Jackson County. And so they, they sign a paper and they tell the saints of DeWitt that they have till October 1st to move or they're going to be driven out. Well, when the saints don't leave their homes, an armed mob shows up on October 2nd and starts firing on the Latter-day Saints in the city and they set up a siege like they won't let any food get into the city. Joseph is able to sneak in at night on October 6th and he sees that basically the Latter-day Saints are going to starve. And so he sends a message uh, through a Missourian friend to Governor Boggs asking for help. He's like, dude, you've got an armed mob attacking citizens of your state. Please help us. And Governor Boggs' reply is this, quote, the quarrel is between the Mormons and the mob and they can fight it out, end quote. Joseph is deeply disgusted and frustrated by this. He says, quote, we have tried long enough. Who is so big a fool to cry, the law, the law, when it's always administered against us and never in our favor? Because they don't have enough support, the citizens of DeWitt, uh, of DeWitt of Carroll County pack up their stuff on October 11th and abandon their homes and move up, up to with the rest of the Latter-day Saints near Far West. Well, based on the success of driving the Saints from DeWitt, Several Missourians plan a similar siege at the second largest church settlement in Adamondiamon. As they go towards Adamondiamon, um, there is a snowfall th all throughout the, the county, and the cities and citizens of Gallatin and Millport lend men and supplies to the effort to drive the Latter-day Saints to the city. Typical of what's happening before they go to the major population, they stop at the smaller church centers. For example, Joseph's little brother is named Don Carlos, and he's married to a girl named Agnes. He's away from their, their, uh, their farm. Their farm's outside of uh, Adamondiam and several miles outside of Adamondiam, just a small settlement. Not even a settlement, it's just them, basically. 
And so Don, with Don Carlos away, the mob kicks in the door, finds Agnes and her two small daughters, drags them out into the snow at gunpoint, and sets their house on fire, leaving them without coats or blankets in the snow. Agnes has nowhere to go, so she puts one girl on one hip and another girl on the other hip and starts marching the three miles through the snow to Adamon Diamond. At one point, she gets to a, a stream and has to, to wade through the icy stream in order to stagger into Adamon Diamond. Sometime early in the morning of October 16th, she gets there, and she's only one of many refugees that are staggering into Adamon Diamond, desperate, cold, and weary. And so the, I know you are all Christians and you are all patient and you are all kind. And if somebody offends you, you bear it patiently and kindly. But as the, the people of Adam and Diamond watch this stream of women like Agnes coming in with tales, and this is one of the nicer ones, uh, of deprivation, fire, assault, battery, they've had enough. And they blame Gallatin and Millport, the two cities here. And so they get a bunch of dudes together and they go down to Gallatin and the, the Latter-day Saints break into the general store and other shops and they took the food, the blankets, the bedding, the clothing and coats that they feel like the people of Gallatin and Millport have stolen from the refugees. And then in their anger, they burn down the store and a couple of other buildings, the post office. Not a great moment for their Christianity, but I hope you're not sitting back there and being like, oh my goodness, what a bunch of terrible people. Dude, if, you're, if that's your stance, take a look in the mirror. Dude, you are not examining your life correctly here. That we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the only perfect pe person is Jesus Christ and the rest of us are fumbling and flailing towards him. Anyways, after this moment, Thomas B. Marsh, Apostle Thomas B. Marsh and Orson Hyde, they're like, nope, that's it, I'm out. And they write a letter to Governor Boggs saying, hey, Joseph plans to take over the world. Now, I'm here to tell you, Joseph probably said something similar to that, but he doesn't mean he's going to march on the world and take it over. He means basically that the church is going to spread and Templars are going to dot the land. But this gives um, Governor Boggs another quiver in his, another arrow in his quiver that he doesn't like the Latter-day Saints to begin with, and this kind of pushes him further to that, that direction. But the real straw that breaks the camel's back is what's called the Battle of Crooked River. It starts with an ugly sucker named Samuel Bogart. Samuel Bogart is an enemy to the, the Latter-day Saints from way back in the day. He's uh, from Jackson County, and he's hated them from the beginning. So when he hears about the conflict with the saints, he takes a group of friends and they go up to Ray County and they ride the line between Ray and Caldwell County. Caldwell being again where Far West is and this main settlement of Latter-day Saints. And he tells everybody he's just there to keep the peace and keep these filthy Latter-day Saints from coming in and attacking the poor people of Ray County. That's not what he actually does. What he does is he runs a system of systematic raids into Caldwell County, at one point attacking the homes of Latter-day Saints and dragging three Latter-day Saint men back into Caldwell County as his prisoner. Then, just to taunt and provoke the Latter-day Saints, he sends a message to Far West stating that he intends to assassinate these captives for their crimes. Well, the leader of the, the militia in Far West, a guy named Colonel Hinkle, commands a, guy, a group of 75 men to go out and to rescue these captives. As the rescue party approaches Bogart, um, Bogart's men open fire, there's a quick skirmish. They're able to rescue the three Latter-day Saints, 
but in the process of the firefight, three Latter-day Saints are killed, including Apostle David W. Patton, and one of uh, Samuel Bogart's men is killed. That's the facts. But the facts aren't nearly as important as the story. And the story that gets told to Governor Lilburn Boggs is that church members have attacked innocent Missourians in Ray County and slaughtered 50 to 60 of them. And so with this information, Governor Boggs issues what becomes known as the extermination order on October 27, 1838. He says, quote, information of the most appalling character places the Mormons in an attitude of open and avowed defiance of the laws, and having made war upon the people of this state, your orders are therefore to hasten your operations with all possible speed. The Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated. Notice that language that Sidney used earlier. Or driven from the state, end quote. Now, Joseph doesn't know about the the extermination order yet, but when he hears about the Battle of Crooked River with Samuel Bogart, he fears reprisals, so he advises all Latter-day Saints of the two main counties to move to the two main population centers of Far West and Adamondiamon. But one individual named Jacob Hahn doesn't uh, want to abandon his mill that he's created in the small settlement of Hahn's Mill, creatively named, and so he doesn't even pass on the message to gather too far west, which is deeply unfortunate. On Tuesday, October 30th, so you were at 4 p.m., so you're in October here and you know how it is, uh, 4 p.m. late in the day, especially when it's not daylight savings anymore, it's kind of twilighty, kind of, kind of dark there. So on October um, 30th, 240 men approached the settlement of Hans Mill. As they approach, David Evans, the military leader for the Latter-day Saints there, goes out and sues for peace, and they shoot at him. Hearing gunfire, the elderly, the women, and the children flee to the woods. As they flee to the woods, the mobbers shoot at all of them like it's deer hunting season. The men, for some reason, decide to make a stand in the blacksmith shop, thinking that the widely spaced logs will let them defend themselves. It's a terrible idea. It quickly turns into a death trap as they are vastly outnumbered. The mobbers use 100 rifles to fire 1,600 rounds into the building, slaughtering everyone in sight. One Latter-day Saint is able to escape the barrage of the blacksmith shop and run out, where he's quickly caught and surrenders to Jacob S. Rogers Jr., who then takes the guy's gun grabs a scythe, and hacks the Latter-day Saint to pieces. When the mob storms into the shop, they find everyone dead except for three young boys. There's 10-year-old Sardius Smith, 7-year-old Alma Smith, and 9-year-old Charles Merrick. The boys were taking refuge under the blacksmith's bellows. So the mob opens fires on the, boy, on the boys. Nine-year-old Charles Merrick is hit with three bullets and killed rather quickly. Seven-year-old Alma is shot with a gaping wound in his hip, shattering off large pieces of bone and is left for dead. His mom's later going to find him and he's going to be miraculously healed. Cartilage is going to regrow on his hip and he's actually going to serve powerful missions in the Pacific. But his older brother is unhurt in the initial volley. So they grab 10-year-old Sardius Smith, pull him out, and a man named Glaze puts his musket against Sardius's skull and literally blows off the top of his head. 
When one of the mob turns his head away and says, it's a damn shame to kill little boys, Glaze's response is, nits make lice. As that happens, the state militia now under the command and legal authorization of General Boggs surrounds the the saints in far west and outnumbers them by five to one. At first, Joseph is uh, sure that rescue is coming, divine intervention will come, the angels will fight for them, and he's ready to to defend themselves. But when he hears about um, the extermination order and the slaughter at Han, Hans Mill, he tells the militia leader George Hinkle to, quote, beg like a dog for peace, end quote. So that evening, he goes out under a flag of truce and meets with the militia commander, General Lucas. General Lucas command demands that in order for there to be peace, Hinkle needs to surrender Joseph Smith and other church leaders for punishment, that the Latter-day Saints need to surrender all their property, that they additionally need to pay for the war and damages, and that they need to surrender their weapons and leave the state immediately. And Colonel Hinkle agrees to all the demands. But he doesn't tell Joseph. Instead, he goes back to Far West and convinces Joseph and other church leaders that George, General Lucas wants to negotiate directly with Joseph Smith. But when they arrive to the, quote, peace negotiation, Hinkle announces, these are your prisoners as I agreed to deliver up. Joseph shocked but can do nothing for it. The next morning, the militia enters into Far West, vandalizes the town, arrests church leaders, plunders anything valuable they can find, shoot any livestock so that going into the winter, the saints will be left without food, burn their 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 fields, beat and whip men just for the the joy of it and rape women violently it is absolutely absolutely horrific then that night general lucas convenes a court martial which is exactly what it sounds like it is it's a military trial for joseph now there's a couple problems with this being a military trial number one joseph's not in the military therefore he can't be in a military trial and number two, even though it's a trial for him, he's not present at the trial to defend himself. So the whole trial is illegal and absurd. That's what um, Donovan says, who's a, a member of this court martial. But that doesn't stop General Lucas from calling for a vote. And they vote three to one. You guessed it, Donovan being the, the dissenting vote in favor of conviction of the charge of treason. Treason is an important charge because treason is a capital offense and will allow them to execute Joseph Smith by firing squad. Donovan vehemently disagrees with this and leaves in protest. And then just to stick it to him, General Lucas writes out his order saying, Brigadier General Donovan, sir, you will take Joseph Smith and the other prisoners into the public square of Far West and shoot them at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, signed Samuel D. Lucas, Major General Commanding, end quote. When Alexander Donovan receives the orders, he confronts Lucas and says, quote, it is cold-blooded murder and I will not obey your order. My brigade shall march for liberty tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And if you execute these men, I will hold you responsible before an earthly, earthly tribunal. So help me God, end quote. 
Dude, Donovan is the man. Intimidated, General Lucas loses his nerve, and so instead he decides to march Joseph and the other prisoners to Richmond um, for a preliminary hearing. When Joseph is allowed to go back into Far West to gather a few personal effects, his five-year-old son grabs onto his leg and says, Daddy, Daddy, why can't you stay with us? In response, one of Joseph's guards thrusts a sword at the boy, a five-year-old here, and says, Get away, you rascal, or I'll run you through. When Joseph's elderly mother tries to say goodbye to her, her two sons, Joseph and Hiram, a soldier orders her back at gunpoint, saying, Get back or I'll shoot. When they arrive at Richmond, they begin a 13-day preliminary hearing that's presided over Austin A. King. Now, it's not a trial. It's a hearing. The idea is to see if there's sufficient evidence to bind them over on the charges of treason. At night, at, during the day, they listen to all these claims against them. And at night, they sleep on the hard floor, no covering, no straw, chained together, and listen to the guards brag about beating raping and murdering the Latter-day Saints. And when Hiram retells the story, I'm not going to read the affidavit for you, but when Hiram retells the story, it is horrific. You want to, you can go to the Joseph Smith papers and you can find it, but it is terrible. As this goes on night after night, finally Joseph can't take it. He stands on his feet. He's shackled and the, the guards are armed, and but it doesn't stop him. He, he thunders out, Parley says, Silence! Ye fiends of the infernal pit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and bear such language. Cease such talk or you or I die this instant. Parley says, I've never seen anything so majestic. The guards, even though they are armed, are the ones that beg his pardon, mumble their, 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 their apologies, and then sit in silence. During the trial, Samson Avard is captured trying to flee from the state, and they're saying, hey, we're going to arrest you and put you on trial, or you can be our witness. And, Joseph, and Samson's like, I would love to be your witness. It was all Joseph all the time. I had nothing really to do with it. And so at one point, Samson is telling the court that Joseph believes that the church is like the stone spoken of by Daniel in the Old Testament and that it would fill all the earth and consume its kingdoms. Well, hearing this, the judge is like, tells the, the court stenographer, write that down. That's a good point for treason. And Joseph's attorney is like, are we for real? You're going to make the Bible treason right here? So anytime the defense calls witnesses, they are beaten, arrested, or driven from the state, and the state calls 40 witnesses. And so it's not a real surprise that probable cause is found for the charge of murder, treason, and larceny. Now, treason is the most important part here because treason is a non-bailable offense. All the other ones they could post bail for, they could leave, they could escape. But it seems the plan is to keep them in jail indefinitely to ensure that the rest of the Latter-day Saints leave the, state, leave the state. Now, there's no jail in Richmond, Missouri, so they send them to the closest jail, the most poorly named jail of all time, in the city of Liberty, Liberty Jail. And so on December 1st, 1838, Joseph and six other misfortunate souls 
are sent down a ladder to the dungeon of the Liberty Jail. And they're there for four months, all winter. Winter in the Midwest can be brutally cold and humid. The open barred window was too high to see out of, but still let gusts of winter air come in that just sinks clear to the marrow of your bones. The straw on the floor does little to insulate them from the cold radiating out of the stone floor. Any small fire they're permitted to, to have barely dents the, the monotonous cold and doesn't allow the smoke to escape. And so the cold just seeps into everything and the smoke just makes this already fetid odor just worse and their eyes become red and swollen. They talk about like how the cold makes their ears ache, not just the outer folds of their ears, but their inner ears just ache because of the cold. Dude, the other day I walked my son to school. It wasn't winter, but the temperature was in the 30s and the wind was blowing and it seemed to seep through my clothes and raise goose flesh and just ache. And then I went back into my warm house. Another time I went mountain biking up in Park City and the forecast was clear, but the weather changes quickly in the mountains. As we were riding the lift up, the clouds and dense fog rolled in and the sleet started coming in sideways. I was stuck and exposed out on the chairlift. I went from feeling discomfort to just a straight up convulsive shiver like an old car trying to start jumping and rattling. I'm just saying it was cold and liberty. Uh, the, the sunlight barely crept through, right? It was long hours of darkness causing the, their eyes to strain. The food, in their words, was, quote, very coarse and so filthy that we could not eat it until we were driven to it by hunger. Sometimes when they finally ate their food, the food caused them to vomit, quote, almost to death, end quote. Some of the, the, the prisoners suspect that the guards were poisoning their food or even trying to feed them on human flesh. The, the locals visit and, and watch them through the window, taunting their suffering and impotence, like Dudley Dursley tapping on the boa constrictor glass at the zoo. They looked forward to letters, but those were thoroughly disheartening too, as they learned that their wives and children were walking hundreds of miles across the open prairie in winter temperatures cold enough to make the Mississippi River freeze over. And they could do nothing. One of these letters let prisoner Caleb Baldwin know that his son was beaten by a group of grown men with hickory staffs. Why did they, they specify hickory? Because hickory is the hardest available hard wood five times harder than Aspen. He's bludgeoned to the point that his body started to shut down to deal with the swelling and damage, and his dad did nothing. His dad could do nothing. That's why Joseph says liberty was hell surrounded by demons. As the months grind on, Joseph begins to pray. Not begins to pray, continues to pray. And his prayers recorded in, in section 121 as he writes it down in a letter he sent. It says, Oh God, where art thou? Where is thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed? When will thy ear be penetrated with our cries? 
Yea, O Lord, how long shall we suffer these wrongs and unlawful oppressions before thine heart shall be softened towards us and thy bowels be moved with compassion? Remember thy suffering saints, God. Have you been there? Have you prayed that prayer before? Scared, spiraling, doesn't seem like there's anything to grab onto, so profoundly lost. Please help. I've prayed that prayer. And then God responds, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Notice that this is a command. At some point, you're going to have to choose to believe or not. You're going to have to choose to allow Jesus' peace in or not. And I'm here to tell you it's never too late to choose to believe. In times of a storm, you have two options when you're at a, on a boat out at sea. One option is to hold on and to scream in terror as you are thrown by the careless wind and the endless waves. The other option is to grab the helm Plant your feet like a fighter and heave towards the lighthouse. Until you grab the helm, God can't use the wind to steer you to the harbor. But the moment you choose to accept his peace, the moment you grab the helm, he can take the wind and the waves that are seeking your destruction and use them to fly you safely home. Their own power, the power of the persecution, the power of the wind and waves will work against them and bring you to safety. So hang on. Thy friends do stand by thee, and they shall hail thee again with warm hearts and a friendly hands. God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over thy foes. You see, God will exalt thee. God will make you triumph. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to save yourself. We believe in miracles. We straight up believe in Deus ex machina. Well, we, th it is the premise of the gospel that we believe in the unexpected, un, uh, unexpected miracles. Jesus wins by dying. Nephi says, I have seen many afflictions throughout my life and have been highly favored. In fact, the afflictions are seen as a point of God favoring. And God goes on in section 122. He's like, the ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name. Fools shall have thee in derision, and hell shall rage against thee. While the pure in heart and the wise and the noble and the virtuous shall seek counsel and authority and blessings constantly from thy hand, and thy people shall never be turned against thee by the testimony of traitors. And although their influence shall cast thee into trouble and into bars and walls, thou shalt be had in honor. And but for a small moment, and thy voice shall be more terrible in the midst of thine enemies than the fierce lion because of thy righteousness, and thy God shall stand by thee forever and ever. And if thou art called to pass through tribulation, if thou art in perils among false brethren, if thou art in perils among robbers, if thou art in perils on, by land or by sea, if thou art accused with all manner of false accusations, if thine enemies fall upon thee, if they tear thee from the society of thy father and mother and brethren and sisters, and, with if, a dr and if with a drawn sword, remember this is a true story, 
Thine enemies tear thee from the bosom of thy wife and thine offspring. And thine elder son, although but six years of age, shall cling to thy garments and shall say, My father, my father, why can't you stay with us? Oh, my father, what are the men going to do with you? And then if he shall be thrust from thee by the sword and thou be dragged to prison and thine enemies prowl around thee like wolves for the blood of the lamb. And if thou shouldst be cast into the pit or into the hands of murderers and the sentence of death passed upon thee, if thou be cast into the deep, if the billowing surge conspire against thee, if fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness, and all the elements combine to hedge up the way, and above all, if the very jaws of hell gape open the mouth wide after thee, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? Therefore, hold on thy way, and the priestess shall remain with thee, for their bounds are set. They cannot pass. Thy days are known, and thy years shall not be numbered less. Therefore, fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. I hear this same story in a story Joseph Bruff told. He said his daughter was 14 years old and loved playing basketball. She was just about to try out for the high school basketball team like her older sister when her dad got called to be mission president in Guatemala. And you can imagine moving. She wasn't so excited about that. Then when she arrived, she discovered that a couple of her classes were in Spanish and she didn't even speak Spanish. And there wasn't a single girl's sports team at her school. And she lived on the 14th floor of a building with tight security. And on top of all of that, she couldn't go outside alone to play basketball for safety reasons. And her dad, her parents listened to her cry herself to sleep every night for months. It broke their hearts. It got so heavy that finally they're like, maybe we'll just send her home. She can be with her grandma. She can go to high school. She can play, play basketball. And Joseph Bruff said, when my, my wife entered our daughter's room to tell her our decision to send her home, she saw her, dad, her daughter kneeling in prayer with the Book of Mormon open on our bed. And the spirit whispered to my wife, she'll be okay. He says, we never heard her cry herself to sleep again. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.